Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Esports have definitely hit the mainstream. The billion-dollar esports market has a growing number of amateur and professional players who are increasingly seeking help from musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinicians to stay healthy and to perform at their best. Esports demand high-level cognitive function of players and dexterity, demands not dissimilar to musicians and air traffic controllers. Despite what you might think, the average esports player or gamer is not a pasty teenage boy who lives in the basement eating Doritos and playing Xbox. In part one of our two-part exploration of esports and the role for the musculoskeletal rehabilitation clinician in supporting the health and performance goals of gamers, Dr. Caitlin McGee today joins us and explains what esports are. She gives us a rundown on the typical musculoskeletal problems that gamers suffer and she shares her tips on how to provide quality musculoskeletal healthcare for the gamers who seek your help. Dr. McGee is the co-owner and performance and esports medicine director of 1HP, a company that provides health and performance services to esports players, teams and organisations. Caitlin, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to hear from you about a relatively new area and an area that perhaps folks in the JOSPT community haven't heard so much about, but might be starting to see a lot more coming into the media, particularly with COVID and, and folks in lockdown and getting into gaming and, and esports particularly. So let's start off with a little bit about what esports is. Let's kind of set the scene. All right. So as a general rule, like the, the easiest way to define esports is it's competitive video gaming. When when we talk about it in terms of what demands are involved, what it requires of people, um, you could call it a static endurance activity, right? You're sitting, maintaining the same posture for a long period of time. It's cognitively demanding. It's mostly testing cognitive function with a little bit of, you know, physical interaction. I mean, sure, we could waste time debating whether or not esports is considered real sports. And there's a couple of places where that really matters. Like, for example, if you're at a college institution, does your esports division fall underneath residence life or underneath the athletics department in terms of funding and budget? That part, it matters. But the rest of the time for us as, as medical professionals in particular, I don't think it matters whether or not it's a sport. What matters is this is a population with very specific, unique demands that we are well equipped to serve. And how do people play esports? I think folks might be familiar with kind of the PlayStation video gaming. What about mobile phones? How are, how are the different ways that people are interacting with these types of games and sports? There's a bunch. Um, there's definitely your standard, what we call console controllers. Um, so your PlayStations, your Xboxes, if we're going throwback a little bit, your GameCubes. Uh, we also have people who play uh, keyboard and mouse, so PC gaming, um, generally played on a keyboard and with a mouse, um, usually a mechanical keyboard for the most part. Uh, there are mobile games that are played on either phones or tablets. Um, and then more recently, there's also VR gaming, virtual reality gaming. So where you're in one of those headsets where you're seeing the world around you and you're holding two kind of controllers in your hand, but you're getting motion mapping. So you're doing whole body movement, which definitely makes it a little closer to a, a, a traditional fitness activity. 
there are parallels here, particularly when we talk about musculoskeletal health, and we're going to get into the specific musculoskeletal health elements of esports. But I can see parallels with music, with ergonomics. There's there's a lot of kind of overlap in how PTs could serve musculoskeletal healthcare with esports. Absolutely. And I mean, right now there's just, there's so little research available on the esports population specifically that a lot of the research we use to develop our best practices is borrowed from, from office workers ergonomics, from musicians who are sitting for long periods of time and have some element of performance as well as element of skill. Um, we draw from research on chess players, on third shift workers, because weird sleep schedules are a thing in esports. From traditional sports, unsurprisingly, in terms of competition and travel and, you know, performance anxiety, but also from areas like uh, air traffic controllers who also sit for a very long period of time performing a cognitively demanding task. And yes, we need our own research, but for right now, we're borrowing from a pretty diverse set of sources to make sure that we're getting the best we can for players. Yeah, and I think a really interesting element of esports is this combination of the ergonomics and the sort of body position with the performance demands. And that's quite a unique scenario, I think. It really is. And I think there's definitely some some hangups um, among players about because I spend so much of my time sitting at my desk and playing or sitting in a chair and playing, the most important things for me, for my health and performance are to make sure that I have the best chair possible or the absolute perfect desk or the absolute right mouse. And all of those things are important, don't get me wrong, both for performance and for overall health. But you know, the chair that you sit in is about 10% of your overall health, even if you're sitting in it for 12 hours a day, far more relevant to whether or not you're healthy and performing well is, you know, how much sleep did you get last night? What's your nutrition been like? How well hydrated are you? What kind of exercise do you engage in on a regular basis? Do you do anything for warm up or cool down? How often do you take breaks? When you take your breaks, what do you do during them? You know, do you have any stretches you do? Do you have any preventive exercises you do knowing the kind of stress you put your body under, especially your wrists and hands? There's very commonly uh, a lot better answers to what cheer do you have than any of those other questions. How do people come to see you? How do you sort of engage with gamers and esports players? How does this sort of, I've got an issue and I need to come and see a PT scenario come about? There's some teams that we work with specifically, we're kind of contracted with them as their go-to PT and they'll contact us and say, hey, player X is having Y problem. We've also got some teams that we work with where we do a preseason assessment where we screen the players and see, you know, this player is at risk for these types of injuries based on what we're seeing. Here's the preventive things we'd like to do that we'd like to keep an eye on, or here's the injuries we've already identified that we need to address. Um, but for your average gamer, because we treat both, you know, everything from professional esports competitors to casual weekend players, a lot of times they find us online. They find us on Twitter. If you're going to be an esports PT, you probably need to be on Twitter. A lot of times what will happen is somebody will post a tweet complaining about a pain they're having. Um, and somebody will tag us in the replies and be like, hey, you should talk to Kate or Matt about this pain that you're having. They really helped me with my wrist injury. Some of what we do is in person. Some of what we do is telehealth. We'll see players in person at tournaments. So we'll run like a community health booth. And that's more for screening than it is for in-depth treatment. But for the most part, our, our whole approach has been meet the players where they are, which has been either on teams in person or online. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of health literacy, if you like, gamers have about musculoskeletal health care in their body? I think there's there's some of the, the standard human experience of, I know this thing is what I should be doing, but I'm not doing it because other things are more fun and interesting. So I don't think that thing's unique to gamers. I certainly don't want to, you know, give the impression that gamers are less healthy than the general population as a result of that. I think we all have that problem. 
think we definitely all have that problem. (laughs) (laughs) But I think in terms of some of the specific concerns that players deal with, especially, you know, kind of just nagging wrist, hand, forearm pains, neck and back pains, I think there is a pretty big hurdle in the form of it's expected that you're going to hurt. And it's almost a mark of honor to be hurting. It means that you've grinded hard enough. You've, you've hustled enough. You've continued playing for a long enough period of time that you're experiencing pain. So there's this weird dichotomy of I'm worried about having pain because it might mean I'm having an injury and I have earned the pain that I have because it means that I've played enough to have some kind of pain. There's definitely more and more players who are interested in their overall health and fitness. Uh, The FGC, for example, the fighting games community. So folks who play things like Mortal Kombat, Tekken, Street Fighter. There's a trend on Twitter called Fit FGC. um, And it's basically just folks in the fighting games community sharing their like health and fitness goals and like the things they're achieving. A lot more teams are involving, if not a physical therapist, at least someone who has some kind of musculoskeletal health and performance background. Um, I think we're definitely still tying in the understanding of how health and fitness contribute to performance. And part of that is we're still establishing the research on how it contributes to performance in esports specifically. Uh, But really in the past 10 years, we've gone from this point of players assuming that pain was inevitable, players being like, well, there's somebody that I can go to once I've already had an injury to players realizing I could probably talk to someone before I have an injury and maybe find out how to prevent it. And now we're kind of at that point, plus a little bit more of, I bet there are things that I could do with my body that would improve my performance in this game. There's a lot of demand for resources, for information, for education, for support. There's also definitely more demand than there are PTs who actually do things in esports right now. So Can we talk a little bit about the specifics of, let's say someone listening to us chat today has a patient or or a person walk into their clinic and they're a gamer. What sorts of questions do you ask? How are you, how are you approaching that initial evaluation to try to get at the specifics that might influence, you know, advice or which, what do you sort of target with a gamer? Very first thing I would suggest do not assume they have carpal tunnel. In fact, assume that they don't have carpal tunnel. I think I've treated one case of carpal tunnel in esports in the last like six years, and it was somebody who got it from their job and it just presented during gaming. Most commonly, what we end up seeing is tendinopathies. So definitely be on the lookout for tendon injuries. Having that in mind, that's probably not carpal tunnel. You should be, you know, considering other options. Um, second, the kinds of things that you want to ask a player who comes into your clinic you're going to want to ask, first of all, what system they play on, whether they are uh, they play keyboard and mouse, whether they play console. If they do play console, if you will really win them over, if you ask them to bring in their controller and show you how, how they hold it um, so you can get a good sense of their ergonomics, they'll be like, nobody's ever asked me that before. You should definitely be prepared for some resistance um, or some defensiveness because a lot of the players we work with have gone to a medical professional in the past and been told just wear a brace and don't play games for a while, which is thoroughly unhelpful information as we all know. So get a sense of what they play on, get a sense of how much they're playing in a day and in a week. Um, Are they playing two hours a day, six hours a day, eight hours a day? Ask what other things they're doing that might put stress on the area of injury, which we tend to assume is hands and wrists, but it can also be neck and back and shoulder just as easily. Make sure that you're not ruling out uh, more proximal causes of injury or not uh, utterly dismissing them. Uh, we've definitely had folks come in with wrist pain that turned out to be thoracic outlet. Pay attention to your more proximal sources, your radiculopathies, your, your thoracic outlet syndromes. Get a good sense of their whole body movement as well, because a lot of times 
the issues at the hand and wrist are happening in part because of just poor proximal support. And if you give them more strength and endurance in their forearm, that's great, but it's not fixing, you know, the posture that leads them to sit with the, you know, arm abducted, which is causing them to have to rotate inwards with their hand. If you can ask them for a video of them playing, that way you'll get a sense of where do they rest? Do they rest, you know, with their wrists resting on a wrist rest? Is there pressure on the carpal tunnel on their mouse hand? Are they tilted outward or inward? Is there radial or ulnar deviation involved that's closing down that space a little bit? So every time they move, it closes down more. Uh, do they have a death grip on their controller? You know, is there just some tension involved in this? Are you going to have to, you know, go at a little bit of the psychological component as well as the physiological one? Ask specifics about the, the equipment that they're using. Um, so asking which mouse they use, if they know the mouse's weight. Ask about the sensitivity of the mouse. Generally speaking, when a mouse is more sensitive, people are going to be doing smaller wrist movements in order to, to do the movements. If their mouse sensitivity is set lower, usually they're doing more broad sweeping movements from the elbow. Um, so that can give you some insight into where things might be coming from. And then last but not least, be prepared to do a lot of education for two reasons. One, we should do that for any patient. We should make sure a patient understands what's going on with their body and why it's happening. Uh, but two, I think of all the populations I've worked with, um, the, the gaming patients that I've worked with have been the most interested in understanding why is my body doing this thing and why does it hurt? Yes, there's always that, that you know, careful balance between, you know, we don't want to give someone a diagnosis that causes them to be fatalistic about I have thing, I am thing now. Um, but we want people to understand the source versus the cause of their injury. And the more someone understands about their body, about what it's going through, the more likely it is that they'll be able to do the right things to take care of it. And the more likely it is that they'll listen to you when they tell you what, the, when you tell them what the right things are. And how much of your consult is about jumping into things like sleep and mental health and some of the say non-physical aspect versus the physical aspect? Depends on what the consult's for. Um, if we're doing a very traditional injury consult, we'll definitely ask about those things. And in particular, I'll always ask about sleep anytime somebody complains of neck or arm pain. If it's someone who's coming to us for more of like a performance kind of assessment, you know, what kind of things can I do to improve my performance? We definitely dig in more to nutrition, hydration, and sleep there. And if it's something that's within our scope, we'll talk about it. But if it's something that's a little beyond kind of what our purview is, uh, we'll definitely refer to some of our multidisciplinary colleagues. So it's sounding to me like, again, the message here is this interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary care that we emphasize in other areas of musculoskeletal healthcare, whether it's back pain, neck pain, whatever the, the musculoskeletal problem is, that's also relevant when you're working with gamers. As physical therapists, we do get some experience and some education in certain aspects of, you know, the, the psychological side of things. Uh, we make sure we're using motivational interviewing for our, our questions and our subjective history. We will discuss, you know, the the impact of uh, the intersection of kind of physiology and psychology, especially when it comes to performance anxiety about how, you know, the, the physical symptoms, I guess, of anxiety, you know, the increased heart rate, the increased respiratory rate, um, the feeling of tenseness, that by addressing those things, you can actually trick your brain into being less anxious, um, which is a helpful, helpful tip for some players for sure. Um, but definitely we're recognizing, you know, here's what I know, here's what I am confident and capable of providing for you, here's my, where my limits are, and here's the person who's going to help you where my, where my limits stop. I'm interested in how much of your work is about load management, training load management, and how much of it is ergonomics? The biggest hurdle we face with incorporating load management into anything that we do with individuals or with teams is that 
there's kind of a traditional model in esports, uh, a traditional practice model, and it doesn't follow the practice models that we might learn if we were doing, you know, performance coaching or if you have some background in exercise science or kinesiology. It's not about blocked versus randomized kind of scheduling. Um, the kind of stereotypical and historical esports practice structure has been play for as many hours as possible. Just keep playing. And it's not even, you know, I'm going to spend this amount of time doing VOD review and this amount of time doing, you know, kind of sandbox mechanical training and this amount of time actually scrimmaging. It's just, I should just play. That's how I'm going to get better. A lot of the players who get to the top of professional esports play a ridiculous amount, have a ridiculous amount of time spent in game. And what's what's ridiculous, Caitlin? A lot of the, the top Dota 2 players, for example, Dota 2 is a, a 5v5 kind of base capturing type game, have into the tens of thousands of hours. The Korean model, as it's known, you know, had players playing 12, 16 hours a day. And it's, it's called the Korean model because a number of the top competitors in the world, when, when esports was first a thing back when it was just StarCraft and Quake and CS 1.6, were from Korea and were playing that amount of hours. So that was kind of just ingrained is that this is how I get to be successful. This is how I reach the pinnacle of, of esports. We are thankfully improving in that regard. But if you just go into teams and say, okay, we need to like slash your practice time in half so that you can be healthier and play better. No one is ever going to listen to you again. The way that you get there is you talk to them about what do you, what do you guys do with your practices now? Okay. Why do you do things that way? Well, we want to be, you know, I want to be playing the game as much as possible. So I get to get to be my best. Okay. What goals do you set when you have a practice? What do you mean? What goals do I set? Then we talk about goal setting. Okay, so my goal for this this part of practice is I want to be hitting, I'm going to be getting the last hit on 95% of the minions that come into my lane. Creeps um, is often what they're called. I want to be getting that last hit 95% of the time. So I'm going to play until I get it 95% of the time. And so when we work with players on setting smaller, more achievable goals like that, when they hit that milestone, we'll be like, okay, now you're taking a break. And they're like, but I've only been playing for an hour. Well, yeah, but you met your goal. So a lot of what we do is bringing what we know about practice and about load management, but incorporating it in a very slow kind of sustainable change kind of way, rather than changing everything at once, which players will be nervous and anxious about, which means they will play worse, which means they will lose. And then they'll be like, aha, see your practice model didn't work. I'm never listening to you again. Instead, we make smaller sustainable changes. We'll say, okay, let's make sure that, you know, let's work with your coach. The coach said the final say. Um, let's say, you know, we'll make the first two hours of the day video review. We'll review your last game. People will talk about what they're seeing, what you could do better, what communication aspects are involved. And then we'll scrimmage and then we'll have a lunch break. And then we'll try, you know, let's, let's work on your specific mechanical skills. So say you're a Fortnite player, you might specifically spend time working on building, um, as opposed to aiming. And then after that, you're going to spend some time working on aiming. And then after that, you're going to try scrimmaging again and breaking it up that way. You're getting much more intentional practice. And as they see that there's, there's a purpose and an intent to each practice, it's a lot easier to make changes than it is just to say, hey, change everything all at once. We see the same thing with when we're trying to incorporate more health and exercise kind of practices into teams. So instead, again, it's about making those small, sustainable changes, finding the things that matter to the players. You know, I really wish I felt more awake when we first started practice in the morning. Okay, let's focus on sleep for you first. You know, all right, let's start by, let's make an evening routine, something you do to wind down consistently and we'll set a consistent bedtime. Well, you've gotten that down, Pat, you know, how's your sleep feeling? Well, it feels pretty good, but it could still be better. Well, have you tried doing something a little earlier in the day to burn some energy? No, I should try that. Let me take a 10 minute walk after lunch. I think one of the most successful things we did with any team was 
we were working with a team out of LA. And one of the things that we got them to do for exercise and health was uh, every Friday they play a kickball game. Everybody gets outside, everybody plays kickball together. It's, you know, one outside, two, it's a team building thing. Three, these are esports players. They're competitive as heck. For athlete folks you work with, if you give them a way to be competitive, they're going to be competitive with it. And so that's, we, we use kind of where players are at and what they're most interested in and make the small sustainable changes that way. And I'm hearing so many parallels with traditional sports as well, with coaching, with technique, with tactics, with performance. And I'm really interested in some of the language and some of the knowledge that you have as a, as a clinician or as a practitioner. And it's clear that, you know, you, you're coming at this from understanding what gaming's about and having some interest in it, which again, I think is really helpful when you're talking with players and gaining their trust. So how, what advice would you share with folks who are listening to us today and thinking that they might want to get into this field, what do you really need to do to ensure you can build that connection with gamers? So first of all, I'd say you don't have to be any good, but you should probably at least play a couple of video games. You should have at least some understanding and, and not just, you know, a theoretical or, or a clinical understanding. You should have some actual personal understanding of why do folks like video games? Why do people find this fun? Which you're really only going to find out if you play a couple of video games yourself. That'll also give you some more insight into the kinds of demands that players face. I'm not any good at, at plenty of video games, but any player I've ever treated, I've at least spent 10 minutes, 15 minutes playing whatever game they play, just so I can at least get a sense of, okay, what's the movement structure like for this game? How long are they playing? You know, are there rounds or is the game just, you know, a set period of time? Is it just, it goes until you meet a certain objective? Clinicians should definitely take the time to do a lot of listening before they're trying to make any changes. That one's a hard learned lesson for, for me. I wanted to do all the things and change all the stuff and make it all better. And there was no infrastructure in place for that. And players weren't interested in it. And you can't make changes that players don't want to make. And sure, you can help them to understand why they might want to make that change. But you need to understand why they do what they do before you tell them to change what they're doing. There, there's usually a reason for it. The reason might not be good in your mind, but to them, it might make perfect sense. And you need to understand that before you try and change anything or the change is never going to stick. It's about meeting folks where they are rather than imposing. Yeah, it's, it's not about imposing what you know is, is ultimately optimal best practice um, because a lot of folks in esports are perfectionists, are all about uh, achievement completion, about being you know the top of their craft. So if you explain to them the optimal way to do things and they try it and they fail, they're going to give up entirely because if they can't do it optimally to them, there's no point in doing it, which I think a lot of us fall into that trap, not just esports competitors. Um, so instead, again, meeting players where they're at and helping them make those small sustainable changes and understand why those changes still matter is really, really valuable. If you're looking for kind of where to understand the competitive landscape of games a little bit more, um, watching tournaments on twitch.tv is a great way to go. There's a lot of communities of folks who follow particular games, folks who follow particular teams um, on Discord, which is a social media platform that a lot of folks in gaming use. You can absolutely be on Twitter because Lord knows that's where esports lives, uh, except if it's in Southeast Asia. If you're in Southeast Asia, Facebook, Facebook is where pretty much everything lives, not Twitter quite as much. Uh, there's also um, really helpful like wiki resources, you know, like Liquidpedia for Dota, for example, um, that just, you know, give you a history of the game that help you understand why, you know, what teams kind of how they clash with each other historically. That's just like a little bit of a cultural thing that it's helpful to know. 
And then last but not least, really, really making sure that you're doing a lot more listening than, than speaking, which is ironic given that I'm currently speaking a lot on a podcast. With esports and with gaming in general, there's a resistance and defensiveness that I mentioned earlier about, you know, kind of some of the poor practices they've received from the medical community in the past. Um, but there's also just, there's a lot of pride of being in the community of, you know, I, I do this fun thing and it wasn't always considered a cool thing, but, but I like it and I have my community that surrounds me. Um, and so there's a little bit of skepticism directed at anyone who's non-endemic, who wasn't here from the beginning. So having that understanding that, you know, you will be facing a little bit of skepticism and then also having that understanding that if you know the games a little better, you're going to be considered part of the community and therefore much easier to listen to. There's definitely a degree of, of showing rather than telling um, that's required in esports because uh, a lot of people consider telling to be just words. And the showing is things like, let me make videos showing you how to do these stretches or how to do these hand exercises or, hey, here's a quick and easy break routine that you can do. Um, when folks see that you're providing that kind of thing because you are genuinely interested in making the community better and healthier, and not just because you want to come capitalize on the cash grab that is esports, which a lot of people have done historically, they're a lot more likely to listen to you when you say something. I don't think any of these are are terribly different from the things that we need to do to, to do well in any community anywhere. But I'd say particularly in esports, play some games, follow some tournaments, and listen to the players. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.